Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. There's nastiness in the air between Canada and the United States as President Donald Trump's tariff fight with us has grown more intense. Canada firing back. Conservative Party of Canada leader Andrew Scheer's views are the Trudeau government should have done much better than it has. What we can control, though, uh, is is our own economy. And when you look at the, the steps that uh, Donald Trump has taken to bring jobs and investment from Canada to the United States, move uh, investment from Canada to the United States, uh, we don't believe that Justin Trudeau should be helping him in any way. And how are Canada's entrepreneurs reacting to the tariff fight between North America's neighbours and each other's primary trading partners? Dan Kelly is the CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan Kelly addressed the issue with me this way. There's something that I'm highly critical of the of the federal government right now. It is that they're not doing the things that are within their control to try to get the economy back on track, to try to address the rising gap in competitiveness between Canada and the U.S. The question of what to do about illegals crossing Canada's border from the United States continues, and it's growing as undocumented individuals are overwhelming Toronto's ability to cope with its in-place shelters. Conservative MP and immigration critic Michelle Rempel has strong views about what is wrong with Canada's border approach and why Toronto may be entirely responsible for its own challenges. Here's what she told me. I think it's very uncompassionate to give people false hope to come to Canada um, as asylum seekers. We know many will not have their asylum claims validated. Peter Cahill of Hamilton was found not guilty of second-degree murder in the death of John Stiers. Jeff Manishin was defense counsel for Mr. Cahill and argues why this is not a matter of discrimination against First Nations people. Mr. Stiers was Aboriginal. Here's what Jeff Manishin told me. Um, With respect to a murder case, when you have one like this, where if he's found guilty, it's life imprisonment and no parole for at least 10 years for a young guy, no record. And on the other hand, if he's found not guilty, he walks out the door a free man. There's a responsibility that a defense counsel has to be ready to deal with. I'm Roy Green, and this is the Roy Green Show podcast. So, that's it. I'm done. Goodbye. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. Roy. Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. Scheer, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Do you agree with the uh, with the minister that uh, the Canada, the Mr. Trudeau, is taking the appropriate approach? Well, we believe that on steel and aluminum, uh, absolutely, that uh, that, that countervailing measures should be taken. Uh, we've actually called for on those particular items the tariffs to be put in much quicker. Uh, the, the, the Liberal government has allowed for several weeks now uh, an unfair playing field between Canadian and American producers of, of steel and aluminum with 
tariffs being imposed on Canadian products, but American steel and aluminum being able to come into the country without. So, uh, you know, our, our, our thoughts and, and our primary concern is always those workers who are, are affected by these types of trade disruptions. And, uh, and so we do believe that, that, that on those particular items, it is, it is appropriate to, uh, to take this, this kind of response. Let me put you in the Prime Minister's office. You're now running this country. You're the Prime Minister of Canada. You're dealing with Donald Trump. You're facing the same situation that Mr. Trudeau is facing. How do you approach it? Well, look, uh, th- there's no doubt that this uh, particular administration is uh, is pr- uh, proving to be a challenge with, with many countries who have traditionally had uh, stable trading relationships. And, and, and so this is, uh, this, is, this is a challenge for political parties in, in many countries, not just, just Canada. What we can control, though, uh, is, is our own economy. And when you look at the, the steps that uh, Donald Trump has taken to bring jobs and investment from Canada to the United States, move uh, investment from Canada to the United States, uh, we don't believe that Justin Trudeau should be helping him in any way. Uh, so when we see $18 billion deficits, when we see tax hikes that are uh, making it harder to, to do business in, in this country, uh, regulatory regimes that's pushing out foreign investment, uh, we believe that that weakens our, our position to fight for jobs and investment here. When When fewer... Uh, companies and fewer people are looking to invest in Canada, uh, then there are fewer voices fighting uh, in other countries to, to, to keep trade open with Canada. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it is unfortunate. And I believe uh, very, very strongly that the government missed an opportunity in their budget to adequately set, set aside uh, funds or, or a contingency plan for precisely what we see happening. So the announcement this week for uh, for the compensation and, and aid to workers affected by this trade trade disruption is now b- being done in the context of, of of a deficit that is already eighteen billion dollars. So uh, the government has spent the cupboards bare when times were good, and now that we we we, we live we're now in a situation where the government should be responding. Uh, that that's now being done in a context where uh, they've really weakened their ability to do that with these massive new deficits. Okay, let me go through some other points with you fairly quickly because we have limited time with you today. I appreciate you coming on. Doug Ford's first full day as Premier of Ontario today. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, we're very excited to have uh, another ally in the fight against the carbon tax. Uh, this was something that featured prominently in the election campaign. The, the, the Liberals would like people to believe that uh, Canadians generally support the carbon tax. We, we feel very strongly that, that they don't. We, the polling shows that. And now election results in, in, major, in, in Ontario validate that. So we're, we're excited to work with him. He joins Premier Mo of Saskatchewan uh, in, in the fight against that. Uh, we, we believe, uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged by some of the signals that he's been taking about regulatory regime. You know, a lot of people talk about growing the economy and, and they often, you know, just think that that means government spending or new programs. But there are so many regulations in this country, both at the provincial, municipal and, and, and federal level, that impedes investment, impedes growth and, and costs businesses and prevents them from able being able to expand. So I'm encouraged by the by those early uh, signals that, that he's already sending. Well, you know, with uh, Saskatchewan opposing the carbon tax, Ontario now obviously also opposing the carbon tax. If Jason Kenney wins in Alberta, he's going to do the same thing. That pretty much is the death knell for the carbon tax, or at least Mr. Trudeau is going to have an awfully difficult time to push it through for the rest of the country. And I have a feeling that you're correct, that um, significant percentage, maybe the majority of Canadians don't really feel so strongly about this carbon tax being what we require. They, we, we did spend, the Prime Minister did uh, eventually, and I had a bet with a colleague of mine who still owes me $2 on this. Um, the Prime Minister did commit $4.5 billion for the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. 
but there doesn't seem to be any hurry to get shovels in the ground. What do you What do you know about this? <laughs> well, there, there, there's a saying, uh, you know, uh, in social media, when when someone makes a claim to something, that uh, people will often re- respond by saying "picks" or "it didn't happen." In other words, you know, you have to send proof that that, that it actually uh, is is occurring. What What we're seeing with with the Trans Mountain debacle is just uh, a continuing bungling of of the file. The, the the idea that we now have a liberal government taking four point five billion dollars from Canadian taxpayers to give to American investors to build pipelines and other types of uh, energy projects that compete against our Canadian companies is to me the greatest indictment of Justin Trudeau's failed energy policy. Uh, Kinder Morgan was not looking for a handout; they weren't looking for a bailout. They wanted to spend money in Canada. Now, because of uh, the Prime Minister's decisions, they are taking money out of Canada and using it to compete against us. So whether or not it gets built at this point is is almost uh, a secondary issue because we now live in a, in, a, in, in a country where the government needs to nationalize a project in order to get it built. Yeah. It never that, that wasn't the case for decades prior. With uh, Andrew Shearer as Prime Minister of Canada, would Energy East be back in play? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I believe that we should be self-sufficient when it comes to energy. And uh, we, we had a, a viable proposal on the table to bring Western Canadian energy to displace foreign oil. Motorists in, in Ontario, Quebec, and Atlantic Canada uh, fill up their tanks with a significant percentage of foreign oil. And we had a private sector company that wanted to use investors' money to build a major nation-building type project. And the only reason why it was killed is because of the Liberal government decision to impose a double standard on uh, GHG accounting on them. But, and, and so I believe that, that, that uh, as a Conservative uh, Prime Minister, I would invite the proponents back to the table and say, we're going to remove this double standard that penalizes Canadian energy and favors foreign energy. Uh, and, and, and let's come up with a streamlined process. And if the business case is, is, is there, then I believe uh, it, it can and will be built. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really significant issue, this, this whole idea of getting our natural resources to the international marketplace that obviously wants it, and it would help this country. I'm going to be speaking with the uh, executive vice president of Fraser Institute later on this hour, and Canada's second last in a group of 17 industrialized nations that are um, uh, where, where money is being placed, where money is being invested. Canada's second last out of uh, 17 industrialized nations. What do, you, what do you make with Stephen Harper going to the White House on Monday? Well, you know he's a he's a private citizen and and, uh, and he's you know free to, to to take these types of things. I note that uh, Minister Christian Freeland indicated that that she viewed this as a, a positive opportunity. Anytime conservatives meet with our counterparts uh, around the world, we, we promote free and open trade. It's a it's a key principle. It's a it's a conservative legacy, and I have no doubt that uh, like like any other. A member of parliament, past or present, within our party, that that uh, that message would be uh, communicated. The prime minister has asked other conservatives, like Brian Mulroney and uh, Rana Ambrose, our former interim leader, to to help out. I've gone down to Washington to meet with officials there and, and congressmen and women, and uh, and again, you know, promote that uh, the principles of, of free trade being good for for both countries. But if I if I, if I can just touch back on, on what you mentioned about Canada being uh, near the bottom when it comes to getting our resources to market, that, that is something that, that, that affects all Canadians. It's, I think sometimes there are some, uh, some people and, and some politicians who believe it's just a Western Canadian issue. Uh, it's not. There are so many jobs throughout Ontario that depend on our natural resource sector. There are opportunities in Atlantic Canada for refinery jobs to 
to, to, to be created with things like Energy East. Uh, the United States has gone from being one of our biggest customers to being our biggest competitors. And we have a Liberal government that is making it more difficult to get these types of projects built. So they're going in completely the wrong direction. And and the, the quality of life for all Canadians is going to be greatly affected by the damage that this government's doing to our energy sector. Well, I want to say one thing in conclusion. I've been uh, pretty hard on you uh, recently about uh, what I perceive to be not the best way to be approaching the next year in the election that's uh, that's underway. I have a, I've revised my opinion. Um, you should be the first to know that. And I also wanted well, to say, you. also wanted to say to you, one thing that matters is that you were like other party leaders. Unlike other party leaders, you. Even though I was directly challenging what you were doing, you did not make it impossible or you did not instruct any of your caucus members not to speak to me, which has happened with political leaders in the past. So I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, I like what I'm hearing you say, Mr. Shear. Thanks for the time today and happy Canada Day. Well, thank you. I always welcome constructive criticism. It, uh, it helps me improve. But uh, I, I've been underestimated before, and, and uh, you know, I've got a year to get my message out and to connect with voters, and ultimately it's in their hands. But I'm very pleased with the progress we've made in the last uh, year. Just keep kicking them down. <laughs> Thanks for the time. Thanks very much, Ray. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. And Andrew Shear the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent Canada's small and medium-sized business community, the employers of this nation. Dan, thank you for taking the time. We just spoke with Andrew Scheer. Part of the conversation had to do with the tariffs. What's your view of where Canada stands at the moment and whether we could have done better than we've done uh, to, at least to the point we are now. You know, uh, as you know, Roy, I'm certainly not one to uh, hold back in criticism of the, on the federal government. Uh, we've been incredibly critical of their work on small business tax policy and all sorts of other things. On this one, though, I have to say, the, the feds, I'm not sure who on earth could negotiate a trade deal with Donald Trump uh, without a whole bunch of drama these days. Uh, this has been a huge problem for Canada, but the Liberals, in my opinion, have done reasonably well in in representing Canada's interest in this. I don't think they really had a choice but to respond with some retaliatory measures. They certainly are going to have an effect on small and medium-sized firms across the country. Uh, I could be critical of individual actions, individual comments. At, this, at the same time, the problem really is what's happening south of the border, not what's happening north. Do you think that uh, Mr. Trudeau could have spent more time, should have spent more time with Donald Trump, at least discussing what Trump obviously wants, or at least says he wants, and that's a bilateral arrangement and not the not the trilateral or tri-nation arrangement that we have now? Yeah, look, I think that that is a, a reasonable question. The, uh, whether Canada would be better off to uh, to cut Mexico out of this deal and pursue one ourselves with Mexico, as we are with uh, many of the South American nations, and have with Europe and, and many Asia and Pacific nations. Uh, that certainly could be one strategy that, that is used. But I, I think it's been worth trying to get, a, you know, to, to, to take the efforts to get NAFTA back on, on track. I, I, I do feel still, despite everything, uh, somewhat confident that a deal is there to be made. It's uh, a deal that's likely to be delayed. Um, but look, I mean, I, I tweeted the other day that I, I think the Pope would lose patience in dealing with Donald Trump right now and trying to negotiate trade policy. Well, his, uh, his main focus now appears to be the uh, Supreme Court justice choice. At least that seems to be his emotionally uh, 
his emotional direction. What what's the impact? Yes. What's the impact of all of this toing and froing and tariffs and tariffs on your uh, your members, the small and medium sized business community in Canada? At the very least, there has to be a degree of uncertainty. Well, it's it's not just uncertainty. Unfortunately, right now it's moving into negative uh, actions on the part uh, for small business owners. Right now, I just spoke spoke to a. a a steel uh, processor, member of ours in Atlantic Canada, who has two locations. He's closing one of them. Uh, he's doing a, a variety of jobs for the for for the provincial governments in Atlantic Canada. And now he says, with the increased cost of steel, uh, he's going to lose ten thousand dollars on every job. You know, a small business can do that once, maybe twice, uh, but after a while, if you've already negotiated prices, you're locked in and made commitments and the price of your raw materials goes up, you can try to renegotiate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're not able to, gosh, that can be a recipe for disaster for small firms. Sorry, go ahead. I was about to say that uh, it was fascinating for me. I actually uh, <laughs> spent uh, the last, about la- last week I was in Washington uh, for the anniversary of the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, our sister organization in the U.S., they celebrated their 75th anniversary, and the guest speaker was Donald Trump. Oh, so really? I was in the room with him. I was in the room <laughs> with him, listening to him talk to uh, small business owners from across the U.S. We were there as part of the Canadian delegation, and he launched into a big tirade on immigration policy. And there were crickets in the room. He did. Uh, probably five minutes on uh, on Canada. That was the speech I was there when he said about Canadians scuffing up their shoes to bring them across the border. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and again, the audience didn't really respond to that. What they did respond to is his discussions on tax policy and regulatory policy. And that, if there's, if there's something that I'm highly critical of the, of the federal government right now, it is that they're not doing the things that are within their control to try to get the economy back on track, to try to address the rising gap in competitiveness between Canada and the U.S. And, and that is within Canada's control, right. to do some of the things that, that, that Donald Trump has done on that front uh, and, and, and then continue to do what they have okay. done, and that is to be patient on NAFTA. Dan, I thank you so much for the time. Thanks for being patient with us. Anytime at all. Talk to you soon. Dan Kelly, the uh, CEO and President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. Rochelle Rempel is the critic, the immigration and citizenship critic for the Conservative Party of Canada, the shadow minister, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Michelle, thank you for the time. When you hear Mr. Tory's uh, argument, uh, what do you hear? Well... Just to be very frank, I think that there has been, putting it mildly, not a lot of planning around statements like hashtag welcome to Canada, the tweet that was issued by Justin Trudeau, or even proclamations of sanctuary cities. I think, you know, the the public has seen a lot of announcements in terms of them being sort of goodwill statements, but now the rubber's really hitting the road. And I think that it is irresponsible for governments and politicians to make statements like these without thinking about the long-term impact in terms of planning, because these are human beings, right? I mean, I think it's very uncompassionate to give people false hope to come to Canada um, as asylum seekers. We know many will not have their asylum claims validated. And then further, I mean, to not have plans to house people um, 
and integrate them into the Canadian society, I think is not fair only to people, not only to people that are coming to Canada this way, but also to the Canadian taxpayer. Because, you know, there are people who are listening to your show, people that have come to Canada legally, that have people waiting, that are saying, well, how come there's all of these resources that are being diverted to people who are entering the country illegally? There are people who are veterans who are listening to your show that are going, okay, well, what about us? Um, there are people who are homeless in Toronto already who are saying, okay, well, what about us? And, you know, you have to plan for, for statements like this. Like, what did they think was going to happen? Canada is a very prosperous, generous, compassionate country. Of course, people are going to come here when proclamations like that are made. And my understanding now is that the plan um, is, that, you know, if I'll put that in, in, in quotations, the so-called plan, is to put people on buses from Toronto and bus them to other parts of Ontario or the country. I mean, that's like playing a shell game. Um, so it's very frustrating because my party, we've been, you know, I've been a, a, on the front of this, so as Andrew Shearer, for well over a year, saying the government needs to close the loophole on the agreement with the United States, which has been enabling this, this large wave of migration. And uh, instead, they're coming up with these sort of band-aid approaches because they don't want to have to say that they made these, you know, proclamations without a plan to follow up. Well, they're caught in the paralysis of analysis, I think, and uh, and 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 you're you're made to you're supposed to feel heartless if you challenge the fact that people are just illegally being allowed to enter this country, are making their claims, and then have sometimes years before they're actually adjudicated. And it's decided whether or not they can stay in Canada. I just want to. I just want to. You mentioned veterans, and I. I just want to run this story by you because something we're going to do tomorrow. There are in Afghanistan and some other parts of the world. There are still Afghans who worked as interpreters for Canada's forces during that Afghan war, Afghanistan war. They were on the front lines with our forces when our Canadian soldiers were shot at. They were shot at. I've been communicating with a, a young man in uh, in Afghanistan. His name just goes with an, an anglicized name of Alex. Well, Alex is trying to get into Canada. He can't. They won't allow him in. They're not doing anything to provide him any assistance to get into Canada. They're not, not making anything available to him. This is a young man who stood with shoulder to shoulder beside our forces. Um, and and he, there was a very brief window when these interpreters could actually apply to enter Canada. Alex told us that at the time, much of that, he was out in the in the field with our forces, so he didn't manage to to, to apply then. I'm going to have him on with Major uh, Mark Campbell from the PPCLI, who lost both of his legs to an IED attack. Major Campbell believes very strongly that someone like Alex should be allowed into Canada. He's being kept out, but people who can make it to Canada illegally, Michelle, get somehow get pushed along the, the process, and then it's, then, it's the, then it's the taxpayer's problem, as pointed out by John Tory. This is just wrong. Well, th- there is a question of fairness here, right? So, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau and his minister would have people who are trying to legally enter the country through all sorts of different immigration streams believe that this mass migration that's happening at the Roxham Road border crossing does not affect other processing lines. And that's complete hogwash. Because they're, you know, when, when, when the immigration minister stands up in the House of Commons and says, oh, we've just diverted or invested, quote-unquote, invested $200 million to process the claims of people who are illegally crossing the border, well, that's $200 million that could have been used to process 
claims for people that are coming in legally. We know that there were dozens of staff that were diverted um, to Montreal for a processing center last year. I mean, of course it's going to have an impact. And to me, you know, there's the fairness element for people who are playing by the rules and have long delays. Uh, and it's not just the interpreters. I mean, you know, and I can't speak, speak to any specific case, but, you know, I've had ma- members of the Iranian community um, who have had long delays for their uh, permanent residency status, um, spousal reunifications, um, living caregivers being unified with their children, even privately sponsored refugees, Roy. I mean, uh, some of these people who are languishing languishing in UNHCR camps, and they have money raised for them to come to Canada by private Canadian citizens, are looking at a seven-year wait time. So, I, I, of course, it, it's completely unfair. And then the other component is it, it's not compassionate. I mean, you've seen me advocate, you've had me on the show to talk about the, the plight of the Yazidi people who faced the genocide yes. and, and had virtually no access to come into Canada as refugees. Uh, you know, I, I, my, my leader, Andrew Scheer, and I, we made an announcement around LGBTQ refugees last year on what we would plan to do because we know that many members of the community that are persecuted in countries like, let's say, Iran, they can't make it into the selection process for refugees. So what is Canada doing? But like those groups like that should be at the top of the list for Canada's humanitarian immigration program. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we've got is a perversion of the system when people are abuse. Abuse is a better word. When people have already reached the United States, which is a safe country, then illegally crossing the border and claiming asylum. So, you know, instead of looking at economic streams or, you know, changes to policy to stop this from happening, what you've got is politicians asking for money and then politicians giving more money that we don't have. And I think that that actually exacerbates the problem and incents people to continue making this unsafe journey. So, uh, you know, it is a question of fairness and compassion. And so, no, I don't, I, I don't take any umbrage with speaking out because I think that, you know, for them to wrap themselves in this cloak of fairness and compassion, it's actually hypocrisy. So I think we have to continue pushing against that. When this is raised in Parliament, what's the actual mood of people? What, 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 how, how much of a divisive point is this in Parliament itself? Well, it's, it's, I would characterize it on my part as, as, as deep frustration. Um, the New Democratic Party, their, their position is that the agreement, which provides us some level of co- uh, uh, coordination with the U.S., that safe third country agreement, it should just be abolished and that there should be no control in place there. Um, our position is that the, that agreement should apply to the entire border so that what's happening at Roxham Road doesn't continue. Yeah. I, and then Trudeau is kind of in this situation where it's, you know, and I think you and I have actually talked about this on the air, it's political calculus for him, right? Because he's got this hashtag Welcome to Canada brand that he can't push back against without taking heat within, you know, sort of the liberal chattering classes. Right. But on the other hand, he's saying, well, the safe third country agreement is still, still applies, but he won't apply it to the entire border. So what you have him is just throwing money at the problem, billions of dollars. And it's going to be billions of dollars over 10 years between cost of deportation impacts on our social program, processing costs, um, you know, transportation costs, across levels of government, this, this problem what's happened in the last year and a half is going to cost taxpayers billions of dollars. And I just don't find that acceptable. Um, this is not budgeted. So, so the mood is one of frustration. And, and, and in terms of division, 
Like, I mean, you know, I, I've had the Liberal minister, I've had the Prime Minister sort of accuse us of divisive politics on this, when in fact, I think it's them. By them not addressing this issue and bringing the immigration system back to order uh, and compassion and fairness, they're actually eroding social license for immigration in Canada. And I think that's wrong. So they need to be called out on this. I have no problem doing that. I will continue to do that. But I think a lot of Canadians are now waking up to this reality and saying, and especially new Canadians who have come here, built a life, contributed to the country, are saying, look, we came here fairly. Um, what's going on here? And, and that's really what Canadians need to do. They, they need to put the heat on the prime minister to solve this. Yeah, I agree completely. Michelle, thank you for what you're doing, and thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Peter Cahill shot and killed John Stiers in Hamilton in 2016. He was found not guilty earlier this week. And there have been accusations made that the justice system failed a First Nations man, Mr. Stiers, and protected a white male, Mr. Cahill. And there have been comparisons made by some people to the Colton Bushy case in Saskatchewan. Um, Mr. Cahill testified he believed Mr. Stiers was in the, in the act of stealing his truck. Now, Jeff Manishin is the criminal lawyer who defended Peter Cahill in Hamilton. And uh, just, um, just to be clear about uh, everything, Jeff is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for, for many, many years. We have a group of three or four of us who get together once a month for lunch, and we talk about about all sorts of things, including criminal cases. And I can tell you, Mr. Manishin is the utmost professional, although he still owes me a golf game. How are you, Jeff? Just great, Roy. How does, uh, let me ask you this, how does, a, how does a case like this, with all of the emotion that's involved, and then the, there's been the after effects of it, how does it affect the, uh, the defense lawyer? Well, I, I think uh, part of the answer I would say to you is that I've been practicing for over 40 years. So I've seen a wide variety of cases, and some are more emotionally charged than others. By way of an example, only sexual assault cases where you have to cross-examine a complainant. Those are extremely wearing and challenging, you know, almost from a psychological standpoint for a defense lawyer. Um, with respect to a murder case, when you have one like this where if he's found guilty, it's life imprisonment and no parole for at least 10 years for a young guy, no record. And on the other hand, if he's found not guilty, he walks out the door a free man. There's a responsibility that a defense counsel has to be ready to deal with. And so what you do is, at least what I did with this case, certainly, is just an all-encompassing everything I could think of to do whatever I could do to prepare and then to carry out the things I'd prepared. I had a couple of nights or early mornings of really difficult sleep. But once we got through those and we got through the evidence, you do everything you can, and then you're ready to live with whatever the outcome is. Yeah. Was there ever, and, and many people will be aware of the, the verdict, but not of the specifics of the case. Was the issue of it being a Caucasian man and uh, a First Nations man who had been killed, was was that a factor at all? Did that did that have a did that have a sidebar influence on the case, or maybe a direct influence on the case? We'll talk about that, Roy, from two dimensions. First, in terms of the incident itself, not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. Because when Mr. Cahill came outside at 3 in the morning, and I can tell you this, and it's really important for everybody to understand this, 
when he came outside and he was in his shorts, his T-shirt, his bare feet at 3 in the morning in February, he was with his girlfriend, and it was a fairly rural area, and he knew within his vehicle was a garage door opener and knife because he kept a knife in the glove compartment or in the, in the console. And if somebody got into his home, there was access to the home. There wasn't security. So when he came outside, the objective he had was stop the man just by detaining him and disarming him. And he had the safety on his gun. He, he only fired when he feared for his life. But at the time that he did, so he, had, he couldn't see the person, and the person couldn't see him. So on the facts, race wasn't the bit of the case. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the jury would know and the public would know that Mr. Cahill was white and Mr. Stars was indigenous. And there could be concern, well, how will the jury deal with it? So that's the other dimension that gave rise to some people being concerned about that. And uh, for you, the, the defense lawyer who's handling the case, that does not come into play. Clearly, you're dealing with the law. That's right. Although, Roy, one other feature that did come up, and the Crown, because the Crown had the right to be able to apply for this, they said, look, we would like to bring an application to challenge each prospective juror for cause. And the idea for that is it's a procedure available in the criminal law. If there is reason to be concerned that a juror may not be, the old phrase was, indifferent, as between Her Majesty the Queen and the prisoner at the bar. So if you have a case that's received a lot of publicity or concern, might the jury not be indifferent? Might they be, have some measure of predisposition where they might not be able to decide the case on the evidence? In relation to somebody who is uh, African-Canadian, the law has been very clear for some time based on a case called Parks. You can challenge on the basis that the jury, there may be a potential for bias on the part of the jury in regard to the racial background of the accused. Mm-hmm. Back in 2001, in a case out of Barry, the same kind of concern was identified in relation to a case in which the accused was white, deceased was indigenous. And the judge allowed the following question, and this is what, what the Crown asked for, and I gr- agreed to in our case, to ask each prospective juror, would your ability to decide this case fairly, impartially, and without any bias be affected by the fact that the, acu- the accused person in this case is white and the deceased victim was indigenous? And every single juror was asked that question and had to answer under oath or by affirmation. So there's been, there's been talk about and it's been written about peremptory challenges in this particular case. And, of course, that was the concern of the prime minister and uh, the justice minister in the Colton Bushy case. How, do, how did that work out in your case? Okay, let's separate those things out because peremptory challenges let the Crown and the defense say challenge. And just for whatever reason, challenge. And the juror has to basically step up. So each side has the same amount of challenges. Mm-hmm. Years back when I was a Crown, the Crown actually had more of what were called stand-asides, meaning effectively wait till the end of the list. But it's been, it's been determined over the course of time, criminal code amended, we each have the same amount. And we have the right to be able to say challenge or contempt. In the Bushy case, it may have been the case, and I can't tell you 100%, it may have been the case in a couple of instances, a potential juror may have been indigenous, and the defense counsel said challenge. I, I believe, and I can't even do 100%. What they didn't do in the Bushy case, the Roy, was to do this challenge for cause procedure. That's what it's called, challenge for cause. They didn't do it there, and I can't explain why not. But from 2001, at least in Ontario, a Superior Court judge said it's an appropriate question to ask. There's some case law I've seen, Supreme Court of Canada, Court of Appeals, saying that there exists a significant body of research and study that shows there's a genuine concern about biased attitudes that people in Canadian society may have against or towards Indigenous people. So much so, Roy, that the judge in the, in the Barry case said, I'm going to take judicial notice of that fact. It's so notorious. So, yes, I've seen evidence, and it's well established. So when you have those cases, 
And the Crown said, look, we want to apply the challenge for costs here. I cons- on my client's behalf, I said, I consent. I agree. There's a basis for it. So each of us took turns with each prospective juror. The Crown would ask the first, I'd ask the next juror. And, and how it works, the potential juror, the jury themselves really decide who is and isn't suitable at that stage. And then we still have the right to peremptory challenges. So that was done in our case. It was not done in the Bushy case. Okay. Now, you don't get to find out a lot about the jury or the prospective jurors, do you? Minimal. You see their name, you see their address, you see their occupation, and then you see what they look like when they come forward. Mm-hmm. And well, I can tell you, having been a crown, there are some juries from the looks of them, you go, I don't want him or her. And as the defense counsel, and there's a host of different reasons. It could be evidence-specific. It could be your own particular perspective. I say, I don't want him or her. And the problem is this, Roy. The federal government took the Bushy case and the outcry over the use of some peremptory challenges and said, okay, we're going to amend the criminal code. We're going to do away with peremptory challenges for everybody. And that's what they've proposed in Bill C-75. I'm going to tell you there are crowns and defenses saying, what did you do? You didn't have to do that. That was an old, that was, that's a response to one case. And, Roy, here's part B of it. Our case, the Hill case, may stand to show the federal government... Don't be so quick on Bill C-75. The challenge for cause is a perfectly good mechanism. And you can still have peremptory challenges. And so I'm hoping they'll review Bill C-75 and say, you know what? We missed the challenge for cause option. Better to make it standard. Indigenous accused or indigenous victim or different races of the two. Challenge for cause should be recognized. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. Free. 100% Roy. Jeff, what can you, uh, for the person who doesn't know what happens in the courtroom, and that probably is most of us, what, ha- what can you tell us about what went on in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the courtroom and how what was the dynamic that took place in the courtroom? Well, from the standpoint of the presentation of the evidence, I can say to, uh, to everyone that a lot of the case for the prosecution was not in dispute that they called as a witness my client's girlfriend who was in the home, the police officers who were there at the scene, uh, police officers who seized exhibits, the pathologist who did the postmortem, a bloodstain pattern analyst, a second pathologist who had an opinion in relation to the case. I mean, a lot of the, the evidence that the Crown led was not challenged. Um, and then we got into defense evidence, and there were certain witnesses that I called to support my client's position, including him. There were a couple of legal issues along the way that were dealt with in the absence of the jury. Uh, certain evidence that I wanted to lead was ruled out. Certain evidence the Crown wanted to be able to use in cross-examination of my client was ruled out. An expert witness I proposed to call, but the judge restricted me on as to what I could and couldn't lead. So that's the structure of the way that it flowed. If we then take a look at what were the really core features in the case, to me, there were some very key evidence of evidentiary features. Number one, that my client's girlfriend made a 911 call very shortly after the incident, uh, literally within like a minutes, and my client came on the phone. And he said to the 911 operator that uh, he'd gone outside, that uh, the man had uh, raised his hands in a manner where my client believed he had a gun, that my client was afraid for his life that he shot and didn't want to lose his life. And the first officer, second officer at the scene who spoke with my client and arrested him for murder, my client said, look, I'm a soldier. That's how I was trained. Um, He brought his hands up to gun height, and I thought I was in trouble. And then he asked, does self-defense mean anything in court? So that's the framework of evidence that was right there in the Crown's case that my client was asserting from the outset. 
He was afraid for his life. He acted in self-defense. His military training was significant to how he approached this. So that was the core of what the Crown had, and that's then when my client testified and other evidence that they called were all in support of that. Was there any issue with your client taking a shotgun, a loaded shotgun, outside the house? Well, the way in which the Crown cross-examined him was to say you didn't have to go outside. You could have just called 911. Or you could have just flipped the light on, or you could have just yelled, or you could have just fired. And, and what's wrong with that argument? There were a lot of things you could have done, and you didn't have to go outside at all. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that argument? Well, uh, it, it's, it's perfectly valid to put that to him in cross-examination. And my client said this, and, and we called evidence from somebody. From, my client had been a member of the, uh, armed reserve, the, the Army and the Reserves in uh, the Brantford area for a good four or five years. And he was also, he participated in the operation of the G8 Summit, working with the police, okay, in terms of providing security. And he said that there's a lot of training that he had received to, as a soldier to be proactive. You don't wait and see what's going to happen. You take steps to assess the risk, to identify the issues, and to get out there and neutralize the risk and get control of the situation. And that's how they're trained, and it's drilled into them. And I called a training officer from him to say, yeah, that's it. That's how they are trained. And I called the psychologist to say, when you're trained that way, it can persist. If you've got enough training, it could stay with you even five years later, and even in a non-military situation. So my guy's evidence was, look... I was concerned. First of all, I heard these bangs outside. I thought it could have been somebody in the garage with potential access to the house. I didn't want to wait and see what was going to happen. I called 911. Who knows how long the police are going to take to get there? It's a fairly rural area, and the guy could be in the house by then. And the way I've got to deal with it is I've got to get control of the situation. Well, when you're trained that way, and I'm not, you aren't, lots, or you are maybe, lots of people aren't, the plan was to be able to go out and consistent with the training, get control of the situation, and the phrase is used, can, can challenge, disarm, and detain. And that's all he wanted to do. And he yelled out when he, he, he got out there, he yelled, hey, hands up. The guy didn't put his hands up. Okay, the way that he responded was in a way where my guy was trained. He said, he's got a gun from those movements. I'm trained to watch his hands. And I've now got to basically protect my own life, fire at the center of mass, fire quickly, fire a couple shots, rapid succession. That's how I was trained. So the training part of the defense position was absolutely integral. And the judge then has to tell the jury that. He has to say, look, part of your consideration where his actions reasonable is you have to consider the relevant circumstances of the accused. In this case, the military training was a, was a critical part of that. Was the, uh, how much of an issue was the questioning that was done by police of your client? Um, the answer I'd give you is for the second officer scene, he really didn't ask questions. He said, are there any questions you'd like to ask? He didn't really question him, and, and I could, it, there was room for a potential challenge to say, gee, the guy hasn't had a chance to speak to a lawyer yet, but that wasn't something that really uh, I, I needed to challenge or even wanted to challenge. Because to me, when somebody at when first asked, tells the story, tells it the same way he tells it here, there's some case law that says that that's very compelling evidence of innocence, that, especially where when he testifies in trial, is consistent, so I was content with that. I would tell you that several hours later, he was cross-examined for a couple of hours by a very experienced police interrogator. And the Crown wanted to be able to use that statement to cross-examine my client. And I took the position that statement was an induced statement. It was not voluntary and not admissible because the officer on a number of occasions said, well, let me explain to you the difference between first-degree murder and second-degree murder because that's initially what they arrested him for. And to say to him, you know, I really need to get your side of the story. And my client asserted the right to silence. Yes, I understand, but I really need to hear your story. It could, it could really be important. It could really make a difference. No, well, pressure, no pressure there. 
could really make, and my guy's in tears. At one stage, Roy, my guy was literally, he broke down in tears. The officer said, I'll go out and get your Kleenex, mm. and watches him for about five minutes as he's crying, and then picks the time to come back in to question him further to see if he can get him to talk. Okay. Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this case. Uh, the country's talking about it, and uh, you've provided answers that we all wanted. Thank you. Oh, certainly. It's my pleasure. I think it's important for people to know more about the case, yeah. and you've given me the opportunity to do yeah. so. We'll see you soon. Okay. That's Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer in uh, Hamilton, Ross and McBride, and he's one of the best in the country, former Crown attorney as well. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.